Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone's doing well. Just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning, let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. You can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes. So definitely become a patron for $5 a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. And without further ado, here is the episode. Take care. Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone is good. Hope life's treating you well. Just wanted to um, have a solo episode today. And we've been kind of falling behind on episodes for various reasons. One being what I said before about trying not to do, not trying to drive myself crazy about getting episode, two episodes out every week. If it happens, it happens. But um, more trying to focus on quality and trying to do episodes when I really have something to say. But on top of that, we've had different people on vacation doing different things. Then on top of that, my day job, which I've had a new one for about a year now, has been a lot more demanding on my time compared to before. So it's made it a little bit harder. So that's been another thing that's been kind of getting in the way of me doing shows as much as I would like. But we're trying to catch up. We're lining up guests and we have some good shows coming up. Some people have said that they like the conversations, but they want some more old school interviews, not just all the hosts talking. So trying to balance it out and have some more of those. It's kind of hard because everything that we lean we lean into for a second, people speak up to say, um, I like the other stuff better. The people who like the stuff that you're currently doing just kind of quietly enjoy it, I find. So it's kind of tough to really gauge the direction you should be going because most of the feedback you'll find yourself getting is from the people not really crazy about the current direction you're doing. And then you don't really hear from the people who like the last direction you were doing until you switch to another direction then suddenly all the people who were just quietly consuming before pipe up to tell you how much they like the other stuff uh better so it's been a tough uh, balance for a bunch of reasons and anyway i'm trying to find ways to balance my my time better and go back to releasing a little more uh frequently i i don't really know if we're going to be able to hit that constant streak of twice a week that we had going for a while but we're going to do our best to do better than what we've been doing so anyway T. Trevor, go to patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks, become a patron to get the full episodes, as I'm sure many of you already know, uh, so you don't just get half the episodes. And we're going to be adding some per- extra perks and extra tiers, so definitely check that out. Now, the other thing I'd like you guys to do is check out youtube.com forward slash champagne sharks. We'll be doing more regular posts there as well. Today, what I want to talk about was, I want to talk about the writing, the writer's strike. And the writer's strike is something interesting because I see a lot of people having a lot of views on it. And I have a lot of mixed feelings about it. And I think a lot of it is honestly kind of delusional. But it's it's kind of weird to say that because when you say that, people assume, oh, you don't support unions or, you know, you're for the corporate big cats and all this stuff. There's a lot of stuff that people say when you bring that up. But what I want to try to get clear is, and this is a problem I think I find with a lot of modern activism or or can't really call it real activism, but, you know, online activism. A lot of people are ruled by emotion and moralism. So there's not a lot of educating yourself about the reality of business, the reality, the, the economy, economics, pragmatism. Is just about this is how the world should be. Yeah, idealism is another word I should put in there. Idealism, emotion, and morality. But not enough to talk about like pragmatism and leverage. A lot of people just go into these things without really thinking about leverage or they have a misguided view of leverage. And I think social media has allowed us to create and curate our world so much that we can just believe whatever world we want to believe we live in exists. You know what I mean? Because we'll just block and filter out anyone who doesn't think the way we do. And a big there's a lot of reasons why this writer's strike to me. As an admitted amateur, as an admitted outsider, you know, I admit I am not the most expert person. I don't work in this field or whatever. But I will say this, and anyone who's listened to the show, I think can attest to it. I tend to be right about a lot of stuff. And I think sometimes it's because I'm not a part of things that I can kind of see things uh, clearly. I don't have any investment in any outcome. And honestly, the way Hollywood's been going, 
I don't really think the people inside Hollywood have any idea what makes things work and what makes things sell. Now, it's not totally the writer's fault, what I'm about to say. A lot of it is about unfortunate timing. They can't help the contracts being up when they happen to be up. So you can't really choose when to fight this fight. Unfortunately, you have to fight this fight in a time when the economics of the business and the economics of America and the world in general is in the shitter. Uh, there's a term that I feel like a lot of people should know. Uh, the term is liquidity. It's how how much cash flow or credit flow is in the economy. It's not the best description. There's better, more technical descriptions. But for the sake of this discussion, let's just say that that's the definition. It's, it's one of those things where I don't think I know the exact perfect way to state it, but I know it when I hear it talked about. And there's a concept that we've mentioned before. I think we mentioned it on the podcast. I know I've mentioned it when I was on Twitter. I mentioned it on in YouTube and other places. But uh, we've come to call it Zilch. The last letter of the acronym, Chris from Escape from Plan A helped me with. I had it to Z-I-L-C. And he pointed out the obvious. Just add an H and it becomes Zilch. So the H is for heaven slash hell. And I think it works pretty well. But Zilch, you can call it zero interest loan cultural heaven slash hell and it's heaven if you're benefiting from the culture that gets produced from zero interest loans it's hell if you hate the culture that gets produced from zero interest loans but basically we live in the age of easy money and if you want to see a really good documentary precisely about that the age of easy money PBS Frontline released a special with that exact title. It's called The Age of Easy Money. Uh, it debuted in March 2023. It's still very recent. The interviews in it, they kind of did up until right before it aired. So it's surprisingly recent. It's about two hours long and it's free on YouTube. Uh, in fact, I got to make a note to myself. I always forget to put links to what I say I'm going to put in the show notes, but I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes. And it's very, very good to um, brush up on. A big concept is something called quantitative easing and actually i'm going to give an official definition to liquidity um liquidity is the available the availability of liquid assets to a market or a company and it's also a high volume of activity in a market i think that's from the oxford and another definition for it in the India Economic Times is liquidity means how quickly you can get your cat your hands in cash. In simpler terms, liquidity is to get your money whenever you need it. Another definition of liquidity is from Investopedia, the efficiency or ease with which an asset or security can be converted into ready cash without affecting its market price. Um, and the most liquid asset of all is cash itself. So it's either how fast you can convert things into cash or how much cash you just have on hand or how much cash you can get in the blink of an eye and really easy. So the age of easy money is basically, you can call it an age of liquidity. It's an age where if you want money or want to convert them into money, you can really quickly, you know? And I think it also, you can say it corresponds with the access to easy debt, you know? How, how much stuff can you get on credit? I don't know if that's officially counts as liquidity. I mean, let's credit can easily be uh, used as easily as cash. So let's say, let's say for the purpose of discussion, it is. There's something called quantitative easing. What's the official term for? What's the official definition of quantitative easing? And it's a monetary policy strategy used by central banks like the Federal Reserve. With QE, a central bank purchases securities in an attempt to reduce interest rates, increase the supply of money, which means increase the liquidity, and drive more lending to consumers and businesses. So they were buying back all these, they were buying back a bunch of um, securities, they were lowering interest rates, they were encour encouraging lending. So it's kind of like even people who had money, if you're getting interest rates close to zero, you might as well borrow. I mean, when interest rates get that low, interest is actually lower than um, inflation. So you actually end up spending less money when you have a long-term low interest loan than if you just paid it all at once. It's it's kind of counterintuitive, but I heard today on another podcast that Mark Zuckerberg got his mortgage with a sub 1% interest rate. So as he pays it off, the cost of the mortgage actually goes down instead of, instead of the normal compounding because the growth of the principal or whatever and how he pays it can't keep up with the rate of interest. So it's, it's kind of crazy. Rich people get actually more access to cheap credit and easy money than poor people do. But every 
everybody was um getting easy money. It was trickling it was trickling down cuz easy money at the top means that the people with the money spend more recklessly and you know they might hire more recklessly. Like when you look at how these tech companies were acting, like tech companies were flush with easy money. Venture capitalists were just giving them money without even having to be profitable but having a sensible uh, PE ratio. Nobody cared because the whole idea was we have this money, it costs nothing for us to have it. We can just throw this money at anything that sounds promising. We're going to follow the old Amazon strategy of just growing market share until we can kill all the competition and then raise the price after once we have all the competition uh, wiped out. And we can just keep throwing money at unprofitable things. But I mean, everybody had more money than normal or at least more access to credit than normal. So you have to understand how many things this affected in the world. Like even the whole DEI boom, diversity, equity, inclusion doesn't really add much to the bottom line of a company realistically. Like not to the rate that they were growing it, but when the stock prices are flying, and why not? Because there's a lot of liquidity. There's a lot of money out there. People are just investing in the most half-baked things. Um, Bitcoin and crypto was flying. Meme stocks were flying because people were just uh, flush with money. Um, you also saw a lot. I mean, there have been various phases of quantitative easing and flooding the streets with money. Uh, another recent one was COVID era. Like, you would think COVID era would be a terrible time for the economy, but... In a way, a lot of people did better in COVID. Like if you're in a service industry or certain industries, yeah, you got hit pretty hard and you lost your seasonal work. Or, you know, if you're like a fitness trainer, the gyms are closed, you can't do that. You know, there's a lot of things where people lost uh, money, bar and restaurant employees, etc. But for most people, most people work in offices or jobs like that in the middle class and higher. And a lot of people were able to keep their jobs from home. So I want you to think about this. And I promise you we're going to bring this back to the writer's strike. I know it sounds like I'm going way left field, but it's going to come back. If you look at the whole COVID era, there was a bunch of PPP loans. PPP loans uh, was like a golden age of scamming. PPP loans and just a lot of stuff happening in COVID. I mean, it was a scammer's paradise. And they've only just found out how bad the PP loans were. There's an NBC News story. It says, biggest fraud in a generation, the looting of the COVID relief plan known as PPP. And they were saying how PPP was structured in a way that was an invitation to fraudsters. That's a direct quote. And I can't say exactly how I know this, but I've had like firsthand exposure to how bad a lot of these PPP programs were. Uh, to explain more thoroughly would have to involve my work and I can't actually talk about you know the things I know they relate to that but ba but basically it's it's crazy there was so much political pressure and pandering happening to get money to people and to keep the stock market alive because for politicians and finance people they pretend that the stock market is the economy and all they want to do is keep business going and people spending money uh america is not a country it's not really even a government it's just a giant mall that's all america is that's all the world is basically it's a perpetual spending machine not just perpetual motion machines it's run and constructed as a perpetual spending and lending machine if anything slows down the spending it will collapse it's the craziest craziest thing it, it makes absolutely no sense but uh people don't actually realize that people just think america is an actual country that the world government is like this is an actual like society no it's just it's just a giant mall and they panic when money isn't being spent because that's the only way they can tell the people that the economy is improving they can get reelected and there's a lot of pressure just for no matter what keep the stock market up keep money flowing keep again that word liquidity so there's quantitative easing everybody was getting the stimmy checks and for people who needed stimmy checks it was great but i'll be honest i'll talk about myself i was able to work throughout the pandemic i didn't actually need the stimmy check if you give it to me i'm gonna take it like everyone else did but that was just extra money we had two of them but on top of that i'm still working but now i'm not commuting i'm saving all that money commuting i'm saving the time that i commute to and from work not going to a gym not a member of one gym is closed there's not a lot to spend money on stores are closed just buying bare essentials and for, for some reason toilet paper that was the thing to buy and yeah that was basically that was basically it you know we were just there was so much money so a lot of people were just saving more money than ever still making money 
um, there was less things to spend money on because you weren't doing the same amount of things. You weren't hanging out with your friends every weekend. And in a big city, that stuff can add up. So people had money to spend on stuff. People could go in, buy every single streaming service. Why not? There's nothing to do. I'll just sit home and binge watch shit all day. People can just order from Amazon all the time. Like, I would just look at myself to order on Amazon all the time. Rearranging my desk out of boredom, stuff like that. Um, And investing, a lot of people I know got into Bitcoin investing or... Other types of get-rich-quick schemes, using the steamy money for that, using the money that not uh, spending on other stuff to dabble in the stock market for the first time. I think it's not a coincidence that the whole meme stock craze happened at that time. It's not a coincidence also that we had a bunch of other spending on um, Robin Hood, like Robin Hood blew up crypto there was a lot of there was a lot of crypto investing and another way that people were getting a lot of money was the freaking pvp loans the fraud the fraudulentness was uh incredible and they said the highest estimates of total fraud in all covid relief funds amounts to a mind-boggling sum of taxpayer money that could rival 600 billion let me double check because this this article is not written very clearly let me get a better but also a lot of them um got forgiven too a lot of people know that but a huge ton of fraudulent ones got forgiven okay so a lot of them weren't actually loans even though they're supposed to be but here we go how the paycheck protection program went from good intentions to a huge free-for-all when the paycheck protection program launched during the pandemic shutdowns of spring 2020 it immediately became a chaotic free-for-all this is from npr called ppp for short the program offers simple to get potentially forgivable government loans to small business yet billions of dollars went to companies owned by wealthy celebrities including tom brady and chloe kardashian and companies that thrived during covid like many manufacturing and construction firms so a lot of countries companies that were doing well got them but on top of that a lot of people didn't even have companies i'm surprised they didn't say that yet but there were a lot of people with just straight up fake companies or just making up stuff people were on social media giving tips in like those kind of hustle culture type of um llc Twitter accounts, you know, like those ones that, you know, talk about um, being a boss and being an entrepreneur. And the scam, the tips they were sharing were actually scams on how to fake an LLC and get PPP loans. Like people were straight up sharing and crowdsourcing um, ways to scam PPP. And I think that's something that this, this article is not really mentioning too much. And I've met and encountered people who have done this. Government officials acknowledge that the program was rife with fraud and did not weed out undeserving applicants. But there was a way to remedy those early errors deny forgiveness that could have thwarted scam artists and forced businesses that prosper to repay the money yet nearly three years after the rollout of ppp the vast majority of loans have been forgiven an npr analysis of data released on january 8 by the small business administration found that 92 percent of the loans that have been granted that have been issued have been granted full or partial forgiveness that includes loans to companies with mega rich owners let me say that again 92 percent of the ppp loans were given full or partial forgiveness the ppp program seems to have resulted in billions with a B of fraud of dollars of fraudulent loans that have ultimately turned into grants, said Samuel Kruger, an assistant professor of finance at the University of Texas at Austin, who co-authored a paper estimating that $64 billion of the nearly $800 billion in loans issued showed signs of fraud, such as suspiciously high payrolls and multiple businesses listed at the same home address. Now, this this article is from January 2023. I think that's a, I think that's a conservative number because from what I've been reading, it's been the latest estimates have gotten even higher. I think Forbes in June in June said it now reached as high as 200 billion. Now that they're okay here, so Forbes says SBA potentially lost 200 billion in COVID pandemic relief to fraud and abuse government watchdog fines, and that's at Forbes uh, in late June. The other one was early in January. So. Yeah, it's um, in the article, it says because of the, quote, allure of easy money, an overwhelming number of fraudsters were drawn to the program and took advantage of the economic crisis and diverted funding intended for deserving, eligible small business owners. And that's a finding by the OIG. Yeah, so it's um, it's pretty it's pretty 
it's pretty crazy, you know. Um, and they said across all federal programs, fraudsters potentially stole more than $280 billion, with a B. The Associated Press also found another $123 billion was wasted or mis misspent. So $280 billion plus $123 that's $403 billion. Like, these numbers get pretty high. So you had quantitative easing. You had bailouts. You had all these government programs. That, you know, everyone was kind of rushing this stuff out. All this stuff was flooding liquidity. And a lot of people who see themselves as activists, populists, socialists, you know, were kind of pushing this stuff along as well. A lot of right-wing people and capitalist types were pushing this stuff too because they all they want is the stock market to go up. And they don't care what happens. And plus, uh, they were just as ready to scam this stuff as anybody else. But, you know, there were a lot of people who were like, uh, government, you have the money. Make us whole. Give us the money. And the government gave a lot of money in a way that it shouldn't have. It wasn't really... The people who needed help the most weren't getting the help. People who didn't need the help were getting the help. And, you know, I'm as guilty as anybody. You know, didn't really need that stimmy money. But um, I'm as guilty of anyone else has taken it, of taking it. I didn't do any PPP loans, but, you know... I was offered stimmy money and I took it. And all that creates a lot of liquidity. But I'm not going to put it all on that because we've been flushing the system with extra money for a long time. And it's warped all these incentives and perverted the idea of value. And if you look at people, there are people of a certain age if who for their whole adult life, they've never known nothing, they've never known anything but a stock market that continually goes up. They think they're almost owed a stock market that goes up. They've never seen anything except housing prices that go all the way up. Like for the whole adult investing lives, you know, if they reach adulthood in 2008 or later, they've lived in a time where spend anything that you can raise and afford to spend on property because property is always going to go up. It's always going to go up to mania-like proportions. Never sell a stock, just buy the dip. Buy the dip since 2008 has been a totally viable, logical strategy, no matter what the fundamentals of the company are, especially if it's a tech company, because now, not all companies, but especially tech companies are what they call story stocks. Like they, they make money based on a story, not on fundamentals. So if you can create any plausible story as to why news is good news for a company, then the stock price goes up, you know? So there were things that were happening. And I'll give an example of just how stupid stories get, right? Netflix had a horrible quarter and was losing all these subscribers. It was a ridiculous amount of subscribers. And they were overvalued for a very long time. And they were just a hot stock to like. So they started doing badly. They had some bad quarterly reports. And they promised some information was going to come out about the subscriber drop. And they said, we think we're going to have X amount of subscriber drops. So then the news came out and it was a huge amount of subscribers lost, but it was less than what Netflix said they were going to lose. So then the stock price shot up to better than it was before. And people were like, oh, well, the stock price is actually, it should go up because everyone was expecting this loss and the loss was less than what they were expecting. So the fact that the loss was less than what they were expecting, that means that this bad news is actually good news. Like, let's just say some random numbers because I can't remember off my head. Let's say that they said it's going to be a loss of 8 million and they said, and they actually lost like 6 million. Like, is that kind of logic and what was crazy about it to me was the first number the market was expecting was a number that netflix gave themselves like it makes no sense imagine if i had a performance review and then i could actually tell the company hey i lost the company before before they question numbers they give me a chance to say how i think my performance was and then i say well you know what i think i lost this company probably about five million dollars of business then they go crunch the numbers and find out hey gee you actually lost this company two million dollars of business Let's give you a promotion. Can you imagine a world where you can just turn any news into good news by telling people that you expect worse news? Like, I, when I saw that, I knew that everything was crazy. Like, people are just don't care. They have too much money to spend, and they're ready to invest it and plunk it into anything, including institutions, not just people. Like, you have these high-frequency trading algorithms that are just doing these huge-scale trades on behalf of banks flush with money as well. Like, and a lot of people know this logic is dumb, but in the stock market, in the economy, if everyone else is dumb, you kind of have to be dumb too. Like, it, there's a saying that goes, if the music's playing, you have to keep dancing, which means if you're like too smart and logical with the stock market, you'll actually lose a lot of money because you have to be in tune with everyone else's stupidity. You know, like, let's say you were an intelligent person who actually thought that stocks operate 
Because stocks are glorified crypto- cryptocurrency. That's that's a dirty secret. The stock market is a Ponzi scheme. Uh, there's a great video on YouTube about the stock market being a Ponzi scheme that makes a very um, compelling case. But what makes the stock market trickier than crypto is that crypto, everyone pretty much knows crypto only goes up and down based on people buying and selling it, not because of any inherent value to crypto. The stock market is more dangerous because the stock market is a bunch of people pretending that the stock is actually going up because of some inherent value. But really, stocks go up for the same reason crypto goes up. Stocks go up because people buy and sell stocks. The only reason a stock goes up is because a bunch of more people bought the stock than, than sold it. The only reason it goes down is because more people want to sell it than buy it, which is the same reason crypto goes up. The difference is with stocks, you can reverse justify and backwards rationalize reasons. You know, like, for example, if everyone just, just wants to rush out and buy Netflix. They can tell themselves a fake business-related reason as to why the stock is worth more. Like, hey, it only lost, like I said, $6 million instead of $8 million. Uh, Things are great. Things are turning around. And it's a totally human subjective uh, standard. Like people kind of believe this idea about stocks, that stocks actually work as in the price is some kind of objective measure of the value of the company. There's some kind of scientific formula that's happening that leads to, because no, it's just people guessing. And if the people are uh, deluded and in a mania and suffering from mass delusion, that stock will go up. Um, it'll go up not just in the face of plausible but ultimately untrue reasoning sometimes it doesn't even need any reasoning it, it'll go up with no good reason you know because just because people believe some kind of story you know but again all this is possible because everybody's flush with money and even even that flush with money they're flush with credit they're flush with margins they're, they're flush with credit cards they're flush with access to loans so going back to the subprime mortgage to now there's been so many different interest rate drops quantitative easing and again a lot of this is too much to talk about a lot of this is too much to talk about in a podcast. It could be like two hours of, of its own. So I just tell you, check out the age of easy money. It's one of the best summaries I've seen of this uh, phenomenon. But yeah, but there's so many ways in which um, stocks have face fake value. And it's gotten worse with tech industry because the tech industry and Silicon Valley really normalized not caring about fundamentals, just believing that a story like, hey, this technology is groundbreaking. This technology, everyone and your mother, you know, everyone and, and their mother uses it. And a lot of arbitrary metrics like okay twitter is not profitable but it added this many active users compared to last okay well no one knows how to monetize them but um okay that's the reason for the stock to go up everyone go buy twitter you know no one has any idea how to monetize those people or to make them profitable but instead of looking at the normal things you look at with the company which is like pe ratio and and uh, earnings and all this stuff people be like well it doesn't have that stuff yet but it's got users eventually that stuff will be converted to and i think the big granddaddy of all this was uh amazon amazon was the big one where this paid off so everyone started a following the strategy if they were a company and a bunch of investors started believing in it as an investment strategy as investors. But people forget all those companies that had no profits in the first dot-com era uh, that just had good stories that, you know, ended up uh, being huge busts. Like, people have long memories for um, successes in these things, but, you know, short memories for the failures. Like, people, there were so many casualties of the first dot-com bust that were just things that had really good stories. Yeah, so so now we're just, now we're back in that era, you know? Um, yeah, I think Pets.com was, was, one, was one of them, too, one of those big, one of those big failures. But anyway, from 2008 to now, we've just had so much liquidity, so much idea of easy money. I mean, we've had so many different crises of, of liquidity and FOMO. I mean, there's a book coming out that coins a really good term. I'm actually going to get the author on as a guest. But um, actually, no, he didn't He didn't um, coin this term, but it's the first use of it I ever saw. He had a book called Zombie Politics and Culture in the Age of Casino Capitalism. And I think the term casino capitalism is a great way to put it because that's the kind of capitalism we have now, uh, casino capitalism. It's like everyone wants easy money, quick money. They're trying to bet against the house. They're focused on the people they know who won and ignoring the people who lost their pants. And, you know, a lot of people just trying to bet on anything that they think will will hit. And that wasn't the first book I was actually talking about. The, the book that I was talking about that I said you might get a guest on for, this book is coming out actually in about five days, July 18th. It's called Easy Money, Cryptocurrency, Casino Capitalism, and the Golden Age of Fraud. Now, this was a topic I had planned anyway. I haven't read the book, 
but it aligns with a lot of what I want to talk about uh, today. I think that title captures, uh, you know, so yeah, casino capitalism. And I think that's kind of the norm. Um, Ponzi schemes, casino capitalism. Actually, you know what? I just thought of something. I'm going to play the whole, it's about 10 minutes long. I'm going to play the whole stocks or a Ponzi scheme thing. Because I think even though it's 10 minutes worth listening to. So this is 10 minutes and 13 seconds. I'm going to play it at 1.25 speed. When we think about the stock market, we think about money, the finance industry, businesses, and making money from investing in successful businesses. The belief is, investing in successful businesses is what leads to investment profits. And there's a direct connection between the success of the underlying company and the profits investors experience. This is a reasonable idea, which is why it's in textbooks and recited by finance professionals who sell stocks and stock-related services. However, this is not how stocks actually work. Most finance professionals have no idea where profits from stocks come from. They just assume it gets magically generated from the complexities of the market. The myth is, profits from stocks are generated from the earnings and growth of the underlying companies. And when a company makes money, they share the profits with their investors. But in practice, most public companies never pay dividends on their stocks. And when they make money, which can be millions or even billions, they keep everything. The reality is, profits from stocks come from other investors who are buying and selling stocks. When an investor buys a stock for $10 and sells it for $11, that $11 comes from another investor, someone who will then start hunting for yet another investor who will give him $12, and so on. This is technically a negative sum scenario for investors because they are contributing all the money and there are fees attached to every transaction. The company that issued the stock isn't involved in these transactions, so whether the business is making or losing money is irrelevant. This is why companies like Tesla Motors, who has lost billions since they became a public company, can still have stocks that appreciate in value. But in a situation where investors' profits are strictly dependent on money from other investors, Investors can make or lose money regardless of whether the company they invested in is making or losing money. In reality, the stock market is a massive system that shuffles money between investors. It is a system where current investors' profits are directly dependent on the inflow of money from new investors. And such a system is also known as a Ponzi scheme. But what most people don't realize is that a Ponzi scheme can also produce a lot of winners. It's not a scam where everyone loses money, even with the presence of middlemen and fees. A lot of investors who are involved and unaware of the scam can make money too. The fraudulent aspect of a Ponzi scheme is not its inability to produce a few winners. The issue is in the mechanics and where that money comes from and how investors who make money are taking it from other investors who also want to make money. But. If the stock market is a giant Ponzi scheme, and it's as obvious as tracing the cash flow of a typical stock transaction, then why is it legal? If stocks are Ponzi assets, why are finance professionals allowed to sell them to investors? And why are there so many university classes and textbooks on stock analysis, but not one of them mentions the existence of this Ponzi factor? Finance professionals do not see the stock market as a Ponzi scheme because they believe in several fallacies. These are ideas that people assume are true because they heard it from someone else. But the credibility for these ideas come from repetition, tradition, and people who recite it, rather than proof, logic, or facts. The first fallacy and the most fundamental falsehood that leads to other false ideas is the notion that stocks are equity instruments that represent ownership in a company and the value of the stock is connected to the value of a company. This idea is false because the values of stocks have no legitimacy. A real estate transaction has legitimacy because the value of the property is backed by the intrinsic physical value of the property itself. 
The value of a bond is also legitimate because there is a defined entity that is responsible for repaying the face value. But stocks have no legitimacy because no one has any obligations to repay the shareholders anything. A share of Google might trade for $900, but Google explicitly states in writing that the share has no voting rights. They don't share business profits with their investors, and Google is only obligated to pay the shareholder the par value of 0.001 cent for that $900 share. Finance professionals confuse stocks with ownership instruments because they ignore history. Before the 1900s, stocks paid dividends. So at one point, stocks were legitimate ownership instruments because there was a profit-sharing agreement between the shareholders and the companies they owned. That's how stocks used to work. And that is how stocks are supposed to work. But that is not how stocks work now. The second fallacy, which is a product of the first fallacy, is the idea that the asset value of a stock is the same thing as cash. When people see a share of Google that is trading at $900, they will just assume that is $900 in real money. But the value of a stock is just an idea. It is just a thought, something completely imaginary, which is why the price can rise and fall sharply at any given moment. On the other hand, money is an instrument for trade that is designed to serve as a medium of exchange for goods and services. It is in both physical and electronic form, and for the most part, it is finite and traceable. It is legal tender that is issued and backed by the government, and it is what investors ultimately care about. Investors do not buy stocks for the sake of having stocks. They buy stocks because they want more money. As of September 2017, the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ had a combined value of over $30 trillion. However, there is only $1.6 trillion of real money in circulation in the entire U.S. economy. The investors who are holding $30 trillion in stocks will never receive the $30 trillion in real money they feel entitled to because that amount of money simply does not exist. The third fallacy is the assumption that the stock market is positive sum for investors and the system produces more wins than losses. This is why finance firms can label their products and services as investing rather than gambling, and why 18-year-old kids can open online trading accounts. However, the positive sum assumption has never been proven. To show if the stock market is positive sum, all we have to do is add up all the money investors have won and lost over the years and see if that adds up to something positive. The problem is, no one knows how much money people have lost. There is no database that tracks investor losses, and no one knows how much investors have been winning or losing over the years. The reason why people think the stock market is positive sum is that they believe in the second fallacy and think people must have made money because the stock market has grown to $30 trillion. But a real positive sum situation needs to consider the wins and losses of all the investors that are involved, which includes the last investors holding $30 trillion of imaginary money that doesn't exist. The idea that the stock market is a giant Ponzi scheme isn't new. As repulsive as this idea is to finance professionals, it's not an idea they can properly deny or refute. They cannot explain how investors can make money without taking it from other investors, or shed any light on how much money the investment finance industry has lost for investors over the years. The typical way finance professionals defend the Ponzi factor accusation is by bringing up hypothetical scenarios, such as what a company can or might do in the future. They'll say things like, Google can start paying dividends, or Tesla might start making money. Hypothetically speaking, anything can happen. The world of the hypothetical is only limited by our imagination. The problem is, those events are unforeseeable and don't happen in practice. But on the other hand, the Ponzi scenario where investors are feeding off each other while the companies they own hoard profits, this is not a hypothetical situation. It is what is happening in practice. This is a very real scenario, something we can observe every single day. Now that's by this author called Tan Yu, T-A-N, last name L-I-U. But there's something else that happens that's really scammy in the whole funny money in the stock market uh, called stock buybacks. Stock buybacks are, is basically companies shorting 
their own stock. Basically, companies profiting off of the decline of their own their own stock. Like it's 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 a really crazy it's a really crazy thing. But Dave, actually, you know what? It's a really easy way to. I'm gonna play the same guy talking about stock buyback scams. Hold on. Some finance junkies are thinking, what about stock buybacks? Public companies have returned hundreds of billions of dollars to investors through buybacks. The critical word that is missing from their vocabulary and calculation is dilution. The additional shares public companies print before and after the buyback. Contrary to what you may have heard from the media, academics, and even Wall Street critics like Bernie Sanders, stock buybacks are not returns to investors. Most buybacks are complete scams. On the surface, it might look like companies are returning money to investors, but unlike dividends, which are paid and done, stock buybacks can be rescinded when companies print more shares after the buyback. Such dilution can come from initial public offerings by new companies, secondary offerings by existing companies, or employee stock compensation. All three scenarios add new shares to the market and extract money from investors. I investigated 1,274 firms that engaged in buybacks between 2009 and 2016 and found 60% of them had increases in their shares outstanding between 2004 and 2018. A legitimate stock buyback should decrease a company's total shares outstanding, but 755, or 60%, of the companies showed increases in their shares outstanding around the years they supposedly bought back stocks. This means most buyback companies don't return money to investors, but they actually take money from investors when no one is looking. The existence of false buybacks should not be surprising. If you think about it, public companies like Morgan Stanley and AT&T have been buying back stocks for almost a century. If their buybacks were legitimate, they should have acquired all their shares by now and become private. The reason they are still public is that they print more shares than they buy back. The following table shows a few of the 755 companies that engaged in false buybacks between 2009 and 2016. The most disturbing thing about the companies on that list is that most of them also paid dividends. In fact, dividend companies made up 539 of the 755 companies that engaged in false buybacks. It was an unexpected and puzzling discovery. At first, I had problems interpreting the results. It's easy to see why Ponzi asset firms wouldn't care about dilution because they don't have to pay dividends on diluted shares. However, the data shows that the majority of the false buybacks belonged to dividend firms, which shows that dividend firms printed diluted shares without much concern for additional dividend liabilities. If a company is simultaneously diluting while they pay dividends, then the money they are receiving from selling diluted shares to investors is also being used to pay dividends. The company will not draw a straight line between the two actions, but it's clear that money is going into a pot that gets mixed and paid out to other investors. That's how capital gains work, but it's also true for many dividends as well. Like many of my discoveries over the years, it was not something I wanted to accept when I first saw it, which is why I had a hard time interpreting self-evident and obvious results. In addition to the notable diluters, there were also some extreme diluters whose shares outstanding increased by as much as 6,432%. These extreme cases were the result of standard dilution from printing shares and multiple reverse splits and efforts to salvage the stock price. For example, the biotechnology company Citrix Corp, ticker CYTR, had about 804,000 split-adjusted shares at $2 a share in January 2004. By 2012, the price dropped to $0.32 cents per share, at which point Citrix did a reverse split and combined 12 shares into one to raise the price to $3.81 cents per share. By 2017, the price dropped to 36 cents per share, at which point they did another reverse split to bring the price back up to $2.18 per share. By December 2018, Citrix's total shares outstanding was 3.6 million, which is astronomically higher than what they had in 2004. The actions of Citrix looks like a form of price manipulation, but it's also legal. But the most important thing to keep in mind is that from the perspective of CNBC, Bloomberg, and many finance academics, Citrix is a biotech company with a history of buying back stocks. Finance junkies like to rationalize false buybacks by saying the dilution was probably from stock compensations, not secondary offerings. But if they thought about it a step deeper, they'd realize that stock compensation is essentially the same thing. The only difference is stocks are printed for the employees who will then sell it to investors. The concept of employee stock compensation is a scam that is closely related to buybacks. Some buybacks are specifically designed to pay the board of directors and CEOs. The top dogs at a company can decide how many shares they want to print for themselves and use the company's money to buy their shares. A stock is worthless unless it can be converted into cash. And sometimes that's how it is converted. But that's not the real scam. That is as legitimate as stock compensation gets. The real scam is in the perception that companies can compensate their employees with stocks. The simple truth is, companies don't pay their employees with stocks. They print stocks, and in most cases, investors who buy stocks are paying those employees. Employees don't technically get paid with stocks because they don't want stocks. They want money. The reason they'll take stocks is because they can get their money through the Ponzi process. If stocks are a real form of compensation, the CEOs and employees should hold those stocks forever. They should not feel a need or be allowed to cash the paper they print with investors and pension plans. 
The issues with dilution also elucidate the fact that stocks are not finite. Most companies are not prudent about issuing diluted shares, but freely print as many as they need. The non-finite nature of stocks is also why the idea of voting rights is a complete joke and why stocks cannot be considered or compared to real assets with tangible value. A real asset must have two critical elements. One, it must be finite with a limited number of owners or shares. Two, it must have a value that can be realized without money from other investors, a value that is not strictly dependent on the Ponzi factor. These two elements exist with real ownership. And they also exist with certain stocks like Apple Inc., who pays dividends and buys back shares without printing more for now. So that's by the same author. But I played all this because I want to kind of give you an idea of how scammy and fraudulent the stock market is. And I've used this example before, but bear with me in case you, if you've heard me use the example before. But we talked about hyperreality. It's a concept by Bourgeois and something that's more real than the real thing. Like it's such a concentrated, pure distilled version of the real thing it actually feels realer than real you know it's um it's like the essence of something squared you know um and one of Baudrillard's arguments is that the hyper real kind of distracts us from the state of the real because the hyper real dis disguises itself as an opposite so for example disneyland is a hyper real version of los angeles and because the hyper real version people in california view disneyland as the opposite of the reality California. Like, California is the real place. Disneyland is the fantasy. But really, it's on a spectrum. And Disneyland is just a pure, more distilled form of California. And it's there to, by being a more intense version of the thing, rather than the opposite version of the thing, but selling itself as the opposite of reality, it allows people to fool themselves into what reality is. And there's a lot of examples of this. Like, prison is a hyper real version of you know society we live in a prison we live in a prison state like we have simulated freedom and when i say stuff like this people be like oh you say that but if you ever been to prison you'd see how great the outside is but see that's the point it's, it's supposed to make you say that like by having something that is so much more intensely unpleasant a form of policing government control and movement limitation and uh coercion it makes you tolerate the lessened version of that on the outside like, the fact that the real world is not as bad as prison is the whole point like pointing out something as hyper real is not the same as saying that oh um the outside world is, is as bad as prison like make no mistake i would much rather be in the outside world than prison but look at all the impositions and limitations on our movement and freedom that we have to you know accept that the police can just pull you over at any time and force you to comply you have to um do what the government says they can do a whole bunch of things to you and take away a whole bunch of your freedoms and your privacy and you just are supposed to take it and comply we take it as second nature we don't think you know and it's the thing in prison the prison the authorities and police tell you what to do when to do when to do it when to work what to eat when to shit you know but um you need sometimes the hyper real to make people tolerate the real but also get fooled as to what the real is and another example I used to use with a friend, like I had a friend that really hated Kim Kardashian and he really, really hated Kim Kardashian. And he would always be like, Kim Kardashian is, she has no talent. She's just a reality star. She has sex tape and all this stuff. And he liked Jessica Simpson. And I was like, how is Jessica Simpson different than um, Kim Kardashian? And he's like, well, Jessica Simpson has a talent and she doesn't. I was like, okay, how many Jessica Simpson albums did you buy? Can you name a Jessica Simpson song? Would you know it if it played? And no, he didn't. And I was like, um, he was like, well, you know, she, she had been, she had done a sex tape. So she's using sex to sell. And I'm like, well, Jessica Simpson was dangling her virginity. That's still a way of using sex to sell, you know, like um, using your virginity putting at the forefront of stuff is still making you think about sex. It's just disguising it as being focused on... Um, South Park had this with the Jonas Brothers. They had a really good thing on the Jonas Brothers and, and purity and the purity thing. And it was basically making the case how by ha having all this focus on how much sex the Jonas Brothers aren't having, they're making the public think about the Jonas Brothers sexually while pretending that they're making people think about the Jonas Brothers in a pure way. Like, you know, like, honestly, you shouldn't be thinking about the Jonas Brothers and sex at all, purity or otherwise, you know, if they're underage, which they were at the time of, you know, the South Park special. But yeah, it becomes kind of a way to sell childhood sexuality while pretending that, that you're not because you claim to be focusing on how much sex the child is uh, not having, right? So it's kind of the same thing with Jessica Simpson. Like, she was, her real claim to fame was a reality show. She 
made people think about her sex life all the time and was always uh but instead of doing a porn and actually having sex she made her sexuality the focus of her appeal by pretending to talk about the opposite and so basically at the end of the day kim kardashian is a hyper real version of what jessica simpson does like it's the same thing without the pretense it's a concentrated version basically people like jessica simpson and most celebrities now are really famous for being famous they're not actually famous for what they they're said to be famous for. Uh, something I call a decoy career or a decoy talent, you know? So one thing I appreciate about Kim Kardashian, she takes away the whole pretense. She doesn't pretend to be famous for singing or acting. You know, it's the same thing with people like um, most celebrities nowadays. Uh, Lindsay Lohan has been famous for how long? But how many movies has she had? Most people just know Mean Girls and maybe one of her Disney movies like Freaky Friday or something. But um, acting is a decoy career for her. Uh, same with Selena Gomez. Like, does anybody really care about Selena Gomez acting, music, any stuff, any of that stuff really? She's really famous for being famous. And she's always doing something else, but that's just a decoy career to kind of give a reason for people to be talking about her. And what most of these people are, and Kim Kardashian was the first one of these, but these people are basically influencers, like celebrities without an actual crap. Like they're just famous for being famous and for being relatable and for having a parasocial relationship with people, you know? And I say all that to say crypto is a hyper real version of the stock market. Crypto is just the stock market with none of the pretense. The stock market at the end of the day is constantly manipulated to make the prices go up. And the people at on the top are some of the biggest manipulators. It has nothing to do with any actual inherent value to the thing. But this is the same thing with, with, with cryptos. And, and crypto and stocks are the same thing. The only difference is the stock market has decoy things you could look at you could pretend that you're that it's backed by the value of the company you know even if the company is in the toilet profit wise like like tesla you know you, you can talk yourself into a reason that's based in reality for why the stock is going up or down no matter how implausible it is or how far-fetched you know whereas crypto you can't pretend that crypto is just going up because it's bought sold. But like like Kim Kardashian is a more honest version of Jessica Simpson, and you know prison is a more honest version of um, the prison state. You know another example is Vegas. Like people think Vegas is the opposite of America. You know like it's it's a place where that's just runs on sex, capitalism, bright lights, uh, superficiality, and and porn and sex work. And really the whole all America is Vegas. Look at OnlyFans. Look at online gambling. Look at uh, people gambling on crypto. Look at casino capitalism you know to go back to that word and, and meme stocks and and people's crippling porn addictions like vegas is a hyper real version of america that allows us to lie about what america is that allows us to tell ourselves that america is the opposite of vegas like this is a place where all the vices this is vice city and you can pretend that you know all of america is in the giant vice city it's the fake like the hyper real is concentrated reality disguised as a fake opposite and yet, that's the big benefit, I think, that crypto provides to a lot of our economic overlords is that it gives extra legitimacy to the stock market. Because I've seen some of the most astute leftists and radical um, thinkers talk about crypto and be like, they'll always throw in the side and like, they'll say, unlike the stock market, which is actually, you know, backed by something like a company or, you know, by profits, crypto is blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, you missed the point. You're 100% right on crypto. But once you said that, you fucked it up because um, the real next step is to realize that everything in the finance world is crypto. You know, um, from mortgage-backed securities to the stocks themselves, it's all um, crypto. It's all just a bunch of stuff that arbitrarily grows up based on um, people buying and selling, not out of any inherent value of the underlying asset. And it's always rigged so that the house ultimately wins. And the reason I bring all this stuff up, but like, I want people to actually understand how capitalism and society uh, works, that it's just a giant Ponzi scheme. And the only way to win at it is to understand the scam and not be holding the bag when the Ponzi scheme busts. That's all it is. It's a scam that trickles down from the top. And when the bottom drops, you hope that you've passed it off to somebody below you. If you want to play the capitalism game, you have to understand what capitalism is. And one of the problems we have nowadays isn't just that a lot of people are capitalists. Um, you know, that is arguably a problem in and of itself. It's that a lot of people are capitalists, but they don't actually understand what capitalism is. They think capitalism is about hard work and exchanging value and about rewarding hard work. And it's about freedom. That's nothing that people say capitalism is. And it's about um, rewarding the productive and all this stuff. No, it's not that. It's just a big Ponzi scheme. And even the quote unquote legitimate parts of capitalism, which is like the stock market and corporations, uh, 
are just less honest crypto. It's it's in a way it's more dangerous than crypto because you can lie to yourself about it for like decades. Like like uh, look at the crash that crypto's in, but look how people are still fighting to keep the stock market floating up in the face of a totally collapsing real real economy. And if anything, crypto I think has actually tracked the state of the real economy better than the regular stock market has because all these people don't have this disposable income anymore to buy crypto like you know before at the peak of the easy money uh, era. But stock somehow despite everyone losing their jobs and everyone doing worse somehow uh stocks keep fighting the crash the amount of manipulation in the stock market is um insane but another reason why you have to understand that it's just a trickle-down scam is that once you realize that saying things like this strike should work because you can afford uh to pay us that's not going to work because you're appealing to the conscience of a scammer and that's all these corporate overlords are with their with their um, stock buybacks, their fake uh, pumping of their own stocks and dumping huge amounts of shares at the top, shorting their own stocks, uh, screwing over investors, um, playing games to keep the stock price inflated, uh, bullshit stock options. Like it's crazy to think you can appeal to these people's good nature or moral moral value. But one of the problems is I think a lot of people believe that corporations are not inherently bad or that capitalism isn't bad. We just need a more ethical capitalism or a more ethical corporation. And they want to be part of the family. They want to be part of the Disney family. They want to be part of the Warner Brothers family, you know, and, and that's where I think a lot of these writers are coming from. They, they expect these corporations to stop using AI because uh, it's, it's evil. And, and I see people do comments like, yeah, maybe instead of AI writers, we can have AI CEOs, you know, maybe then we'll see how these people feel about it. I'm like, okay, that's nice. It gets you a lot of likes, it gets you a lot of retweets. It's pithy. Congratulations. But do you have any tangible way of making CEOs replace themselves with AI versions of themselves? It's not going to happen. You have no leverage. The shit rolls downhill and you're at the bottom of the hill and you have to figure out what you're going to do about that and what you're willing to do about that. And yeah, big problem is a lot of people have bought into the nonsense of casino capitalism and thought they could scam the scammers. And I'll tell you what I mean by, mean by that. There were a lot of things that clearly were too good to be true or weren't going to work, but people tolerated it because they benefited from it. And they thought they found their own hack. They thought they found their own casino hack. They thought they found their own way to game the system, but they didn't realize the system was gaming them was gaming them harder. And now it's kind of bit them in the ass. And I think the writing industry has done a lot of this. There were a lot of people in writing doing, I think, subpar work. And they thought that they were getting over, you know, like I'll tell one story. When Clubhouse first opened up, it was invite only. So all like the social media savvy people in, in media were like, the first ones on it. You know, well, first was the tech people. Then it was the um, Silicon Valley people. Then it was the um, legacy blue check media people. Now these people, they all would come on there. And it's very interesting to me because I always knew on Twitter, these people probably had their own group DMs and group chats and were you know plotting and scheming and doing all this stuff but clubhouse you can actually see how these people talk to each other and how they think i'll never forget this there was this person was a buzzfeed writer and very popular on social media i saw him start a room saying hey working on a pitch idea need help brainstorming so i was like this would be interesting i always wondered how these you know millennial writers work and brainstorm so i went into the room it wasn't private i sat in on it and all these other blue checks i recognized from doing horrible tweets on twitter popped in there and I was like, oh my God, seeing all these people and having a voice to attach to it, that's pretty interesting. They're in there, right? And again, this is another story that I've told many times, so please don't get on me saying, oh, you told that story before. I know, but it's worth repeating. And I also want people to stop saying stuff like that because one thing that I think people should understand, knowledge comes from novelty. Knowledge comes from having as many new facts and insights as possible. But wisdom comes from repetition. And that's something that I think you should think about. One of the reasons why we have a world with so much knowledge, but so little wisdom is because everyone thinks they have to say something new every single time. And if you repeat a point or whatever, but if you listen to someone like Neely Fuller, he's one of the wisest people I've ever experienced on the internet. And that guy repeats the same things over and over again, because that's how you get street smart. That's how you get pick up patterns. That's how you pick up trends and learn pattern recognition. So I just want to keep that in mind. But anyway, this is a story I've repeated uh, several times, but it stuck with me. He's like, hey, 
I want to pitch a show to a streamer and I want to get an idea of what's out there. So what's interesting to me is that this guy doesn't even really watch that much TV like that. Because he was saying like, okay, he needs something that's very Black Lives Matter-y. He wanted a list of shows that had recently debuted on streamers that were black focused so that he, he could basically emulate them and rip them off. So he's like, yeah, I need to know what you know streamers are buying nowadays. So can you give me a list of shows that are like kind of Black Lives Matter-y, but also kind of get out-ish, you know? And then I thought for sure someone's going to be like, dude, why don't you just talk about something that's passionate to you? Like, you know, because that's what I was thinking. I was sitting there and I'm like, are any of these people, they're all writers. Are any of them going to say, why don't you just write something that, you know, is original, that, you know, is personal to you or that you have a strong belief in? But instead, all these other blue check writers, all they did was just give him ideas. No one balked. It was the most normal thing in the world. They're like, well, you know, try this show on HBO or this was a good special that, you know, was kind of Black Lives Matter protest themed or this was that. And the guy just took down a list of 12 shows or so maybe 15 shows and he's like yeah thanks a lot guys it was really helpful I'm gonna try to study these and I was like that's the most cynical act of creation I've ever seen and when I saw that I was thinking to myself I, I can't believe everyone else just thought that was normal I was like this is the systemic problem like these millennial writers this, this is just how they think they just think that you know they're getting over and really to me that's what that was that was just getting over that was like using Wikipedia to write to write your report you know and I think there was a lot of writing and creation like that. People were just sending the same articles in over and over and getting them picked up by digital media. And I think people thought they were getting over. Like how many stories came out that were about uh, homophobia and black barbershops and how black barbershops are dangerous or about, you know, black women warned us, you know, and mentioned something that, you know, black women supposedly warned America about and no one listened to them or, you know, something about colorism or, I mean, these people were writing like human AI bots and it was the age of easy money. All these places were flush with money because digital media started running itself like Silicon Valley companies. And they were just paying and overpaying people to write the most repetitive articles. And it was like the freelance writing version of PPP loans. People, they had to on some level know that they were being scammy, that they were pulling. Like people were pitching the same formulaic shows, just studying each other's pitches, you know. And that clubhouse room gave me literal, literal proof that these people were just, you know, uh, cheating off, off the partner's paper to create. All right, y'all. So that is the end of part one. Go to, again, patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two. Be good.